live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber with two drinks in her hand. The matriarch of fashion. You can't look away Ask her does she do it really nothing to it She's got that fun on her game If you have a party Or if you're feeling naughty Call up the house of the maid Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash amberlive. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There's so much more to the show than just the interviews that Amber does each week. We have hundreds of interviews, comedy sketches, songs, and more on YouTube that you can watch anytime. But... In the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of Amber Live Interviews. Daytime soap opera fans may know Katie McClain for her winning three Daytime Emmy Awards for three different characters on three different shows on three different networks. But she's been a professional actress since the age of nine in commercials, TV shows, and movies, and she's made a widely acclaimed documentary. Her current gig is with our good friend Brad Forenza and his Around the Sun podcast. We'll talk to Brad later, but first, let's get to know Katie McLean. Katie, come on in. Hey, Amber. Hello there, Katie. So happy to talk to you. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be had, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes. All right, Katie, I mentioned you started act actressing at the age of nine. How did that start? It's crazy. Um, I was in a dance class and another girl in my class was doing commercials and I was like, I want to do commercials. <laughs> and somehow or other, I convinced um, my mother to send out pictures of me. I was already doing shows, you know, Music Man, Finian's Rainbow, little college shows that were super fun. And the one kind of cool thing that I did was I was in the Guinness Book of World Records, which very few people really know. I was one of um, hundreds of dancers and I was one of the youngest, so I was on the front row. And as the camera went by, we were all dancing the same routine at the same time for the same, you know, a very long period of time. And uh, it was on television. So when I saw myself on television, I was like, oh, of course, I, that's my life. I must be on television. God what was me. your award? What, was you, um, what got you in the Guinness Book? Um, most dancers dancing the same routine at the same time. It was oh. the 70s, darling. So people <laughs> thought that was very a very fun thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the 70s very, very well. Right. <laughs> uh, what were some of your first commercials or your first professional gigs? Um, the Band-Aid commercial. I'm stuck oh, did you get a sing? Did you get a single I song? I did. I am stuck on Band-Aid brand because Band-Aid stuck on me. <laughs> <laughs> I washed a horse. And uh, then I guess in the, one of the other ones that was one of my first was an episode of Lou Grant, um, where I played the paper girl and he was the paper, you know, 
journalist going back to his hometown to see who was the local paper boy and it turned out it was a girl so that was that was fun i got to go to oregon for that and um movies like my favorite year and pennies from heaven um oh tell I, me about pennies from heaven tell, tell me about some experiences oh, with pennies that. from heaven was the last movie musical ever produced or made at mgm studios when it was mgm on the west coast here of the west of <laughs> the west coast of the country but it's the west side i guess you would say of los angeles um and it was magical it was with steve martin and bernadette peters and i was one of a handful of children that turned from poor little orphan children in a school that bernadette peters was teaching into these magical children in white dresses tap dancing on top of tiny little white pianos and so i got to work at the mgm set for three weeks uh, the choreography was by a fellow named uh, danny daniels who i was taking dance classes with so that's how that all kind of rolled into happening and it was one of the most magical experiences of my life um herb ross uh directed it and he was like the old school kind of like 70s directors with the shock of white hair telling everybody you know uh what to do it was beautifully directed um and it was uh there were pennies in the street when we came to work these little golden tiny pennies so i scooped them up i still have some which were great and uh yeah i, I feel so lucky I, I think i posted a picture of me in the little dress uh with two of the boys on um on my instagram page if you want to see it it's it was really quite an experience i feel very blessed to have been able to do that yeah how much time did you spend with steve or bernadette well, I think we were with Bernadette for, um, you know, I said a good two weeks of shooting. And then Steve came by both the rehearsals and the, you know, the shoot to say hi to, to all the kids. And he was lovely. They were just oh, lovely. How exciting. How exciting. And th they're still working. I'm still working. Yes. I <laughs> I grew up in, as a teenager here in Los Angeles and did shows like St. Elsewhere and Cheers. Uh, then I, when I was 17, I moved to New York. Um, I was doing independent film and shows like Spencer for Hire. And I got all my children there when I was uh, just turned 19. And then I kept in New York doing a theater. I did a second stage show called um, uh, The Red Address by David Ives, um, which was wonderful to do with the fellow named Kevin Anderson. That was a magical experience. And, and well, I tell me about getting started in, in the soaps. How, how did that come about? Well, um, it's kind of a sad story. Uh, I was working on a film at the time and my mother came down with breast cancer. And because she was a single mother, um, I thought to myself, I need a job. How am I gonna help take care of my mom? So I was kind of racking my brain for all the jobs that an actor can do that are like consistent income. And I was like, soap operas. <laughs> if I get a soap, I'll be able to take care of her. So I just kept auditioning. And I have to tell you, some of my auditions were really, really bad. I would, I had a screen test for Guiding Light in which I completely blanked out. I, there were like dust motes floating before my eyes. I couldn't remember my lines. There was this voice coming over the, the speaker going, Katie, Katie, was like, huh, what, who? I mean, it was just really hard because soaps are so fast and they, you have to learn your lines and you're just throwing it onto the set. And so thank goodness I finally, um, got another chance to screen test for all my children. The first one I had to turn down because um, I had a pilot that was might have been picked up and then it didn't get picked up. That was with Michael McKeon, which was great. I would have loved that. But I also really loved this character of Dixie on All My Children. She was just really unique and special to me. And I'm just very lucky that uh, they decided to recast and 
went out it went out again to a bunch of people and I mustered my courage. I can't even tell you, Amber. I was like, you will not screw this up. You know, I was just like girding myself, you know, to just throw myself into the into the screen test. I had little collages that I would do that were po- you know, positivity collages and things where you, you know, imagine the character and things like that. I mean, I was just going to do everything. I was meditating. I was manifesting, you know, <laughs> everything you can imagine to get this, that part. This character, was it a new character or were you taking over from someone? I was taking over from this, uh, this lady who had only done it for about six months. And I guess they just didn't like the direction that that character was going and they wanted to do something different. And they felt that that actress couldn't, couldn't do that. So for whatever reason, I don't know why producers decide what they decide, um, but it made an opportunity for me. So, um, you know, when that door knocks, you got to answer it. <laughs> now, did you get any hate mail saying, oh, we miss the the real Penny or the original Penny? I'm not like that, but I this storyline that I did was of a house girl who ends up falling in love with her much older um, boss who is married. And so they have an affair. So one day I was out on the street in front of the studio and in my curlers, you know, we always wore curlers at the time. And um, someone drove by and threw a Diet Coke can at my head and screamed, stay away from Adam Chandler. And <laughs> I ducked, but I was like, what the heck? What? what? They think that that's actually me. It was mm-hmm. the first time I ever had that. Oh, I've had terrible hate mail. One, I one, I remember one that started with "You stupid witch, Ditsy." <laughs> I framed that one. <laughs> I bet. How long were you on all my children? Give and take about 13, 14 years. Um, there was like a like a six year stretch, and then a break, and then a four year stretch, and then a break, and then a year, and then a break, and then little bits and bots throughout the rest of uh, the twenty year arc that I'm. When did you uh, get your uh, Emmy for that? The, my Emmy for all my children was in 1990, and it was for best juvenile. Apparently, I was very juvenile. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you take a break, did did you did? How did they get rid of your character for to take a break? And did you have hopes that you'd be coming back, or did they say, "Oh, we'll we'll be bringing you back"? Gosh, I I I left and came back so many times, um, but I. I'm positive a Como was involved in one of them. Uh, and I think I, I know, was that somebody else that fell off a bridge? It's really hard to remember, but uh, yeah, they would, they would always, you know, come up with some machinations or I died, but I wasn't really dead. I've come back from the dead multiple times. Yeah. You know, it's, it's quite a feeling. <laughs> now during those breaks, is that when you went to another show or was that after the yeah, leaving one- all my children? Yes, uh, uh, one of the breaks was for art school. One of the breaks was for to go to um, As the World Turns, because I wanted to play, I had the opportunity um, and the, the producer came to me and said, what do you think of this, of coming in as this character? And she was absolutely the opposite of Dixie. Um, she was ruthless and cold and uh, yeah, very uptight, very bitchy. And I was like, oh, I wanna, can I do this? Can I play a bitch? And I was like, you gotta do it, you gotta do it, you know? just prove that you can do something else and so that was super fun and uh, I really enjoyed that and you got an Emmy for that I did uh, that was in 2004 um, and I was nominated twice 
and then the third time I won, and um, and that was great. That was for a best supporting yeah, actress. Yeah. And uh, okay, then you went back to um, All My Children once or twice. Yep, and back and forth, kind of between those two shows, um, and then uh, I was on Young and the Restless for a year in 2014, 2015. And no nominations for that, but that's okay. <laughs> and then Days of Our Lives, I think, happened in 2020 um, during the pandemic when um, the woman playing the part couldn't come in because of family and travel and COVID and all that. So I was like, hey, I'm in L.A. It's a 15-minute drive to the studio. Sure, I'll do it. So they uh, they gave me a great storyline. I'm sure she must regret in some part of her that's like, oh, I could have killed that. And I'm sure she could have, but uh, I got, you know, that's part of the these awards is that you have to have the writing and the writing was just so good. So that became my third Emmy and that was for um, best guest performer, so yeah. Now I watched Days of Our Lives as a child. So I watched it for like 20 years, you know, during the 70s and 80s and oh. pushing the 90s. So uh, I know a lot of those char characters. Now, do they keep Marlena in like a, a sealed, um, <laughs> tube so she doesn't age I swear. what she does she looks amazing doesn't she it's incredible she doesn't age at all i, I don't know how she does it I, i'm I, sure she's not in a tube i haven't seen a tube <laughs> <laughs> and you know it looks like she might have had a tuck here and there but it, it's very natural i mean it's it's just amazing because she's i want um, <laughs> she's gotta be in her 70s i think yeah i know i think at a certain I've noticed though, like with a lot of people at a, at a certain age, they're like, there's no more number. I, they just stop counting, right? You're like, I stopped at 35. I'm forever, or like I've stopped at 45 and that's it. And I you know it's fair enough. Why not? I say, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I know I, I love Days of Our Lives. You know, it was always Stefano and um, who's the other bad guy? Um, Aniston, uh, uh, John Aniston's uh, oh, character. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they, they, one would go away and then the other would take over and then they'd be yeah. back and forth. That was, oh, that was a fun show, fun show to watch. Thanks for listening to this interview. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that we stream on YouTube every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out the hundreds of past interviews and all the comedy sketches, songs, and more from previous episodes. And remember to subscribe to us both here and on youtube.com slash amberlive so you don't miss a single new guest or a hysterical comedy sketch. Yeah. All right, so um, tell me about your documentary. Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that. And it was a real labor of love. I started in 2015 after I finished The Young and the Restless. And um, it just sort of struck me. I'd, uh, I'd always loved directing as a young woman. I'd taken the class and, and been told um, that I shouldn't pursue it because of my gender and um, that it was a very male-dominated world. And so when I started reading about how what a hard time women were having getting these directing gigs, I don't know what, you know, sometimes like the universe gives you an assignment and you sort of decide whether to take it or not. And the assignment just felt like really strong, like a real calling to me and that I was going to grow through it. So, so I took the assignment from the universe and, um, without really being an expert in filmmaking. Um, and I bought a camera and some sound equipment and started calling people and saying, and came up with a list of questions and a kind of a concept for the documentary. And I'm very proud how, first of all, how many people wanted to talk to me, which was wonderful. And, 
um, what wonderful conversations we had. I mean, I'm still mining this um, material. I'm working on it now, pulling some of the best quotes to continue to try to help uh, you know people who are female identifying that want to you know be in, continue to work really uh, that are also older, um, you know, over 40 or over 50 so that they they can continue in their careers because sometimes at least for me i find like uh, the older i get the better i get and kind of the more interesting i get and i feel like i know myself better and if that's true for me well that has to be true for everybody else so i also think that when uh i'll get back to the story of the documentary but get off on the philosophy of it for a minute like when people need to have their stories told um by the people who have lived them you know, it's so important that sort of integrity of of the of the individual uh, vision, right? So it, it, it has an opportunity to sort of touch people on a more um, uh, on a more real level, if you will, right? Because um, they can they know that the person telling the story understands the journey. So well, we have a clip. We have a clip or a short uh, video about the documentary. Russell, okay. run that, please. Thank you. It's not that you just want a million women to be directors or actors or whatever. You want a million women with points of view, women who have a vision, women who want to say something. Those are the women you want. You have to look at any woman who makes it and you have to think, that is phenomenal. That is phenomenal because the odds are against her. We need women's voices. We need women's stories. Our world depends on it. I truly believe that. All things turn around, it's going to turn around for women. There's no one right way, so you have to find your way. You have the power when you have the imagination. We have more power than politicians. We have to generate constantly. Perseverance is the key. The way to persevere is to innovate. <laughs> Wow. Now, who was the producer of that? Um, myself, uh, John Lindstrom, Lee Lu, um, uh, my gosh, uh, Kimberly McCullough, uh, Amanda Quinn Olivar, and um, Eva Paris Cisnati. The graphics were great. Who did those for you? Uh, that's a woman named Javiera Lopez out of Chile. I found her on, um, on online and I was just like, wow. And so we did all the work remotely, passing the, the animations back and forth. Yeah. Tell me some of the stories you heard. Oh my gosh. I mean, boy. So the first one that pops to mind um, is an amazing uh, director named Betty Thomas. Um, yes. She did Dr. Doolittle and the Howard Stern, um, the Howard Stern a film, I forget what it's called, that she was so- Wasn't she on Hill Street Blues? She was on Hill Street Blues. She was an actress who became a director. And, um, you know, her understanding of the studio system, right, was so um, impressive and so inspiring to be around because she really was able to talk about um, the roadblocks that are so sort of endemic in the system itself. And, you know, one of the interesting things that we and many other um, directors have talked about was sort of the history of how these roadblocks came into place. And a lot of it had to do with um, fellas coming back after uh, World War II and needing work. 
And so the whole system began to, behind the scenes, began to employ men to in these positions, right? Whereas in the silent era, it used to be a lot of female directors and female identifying people directing um, all kinds of films. And also in the middle there, there was a whole period where the banks took over. And so when the banks came in with the big money, then the, you know, became very male, very male dominated. And um, so it's, it's an interesting thing. And, I, and I've learned that like wherever there is um, a, a battle for power and status, you know, you're going to find a pretty heavy aggression, um, you know, aggressive environment. And that's true for, for any industry. Um, but I, it seems like, at least for me, you know, certainly, especially like people like Leslie Linkaglatter, right? She's an, she's the head of the DGA now. She was the executive producer and a, the main director on Homeland for many, many years. Um, you know, there's uh, Bethany Rooney, incredible episodic director. These women are strong. They are leaders. There is absolutely no question that they know exactly what they're doing. And um, and they still have to deal with sort of pushback, you know. Um, so it's I think it's important to just keep reminding people that there's many ways to lead. There are tons of women in the industry that are fully capable of, of leading a what they think of as a tough set. And that there's there's people like uh, Joey Soloway as well, who has a completely, uh, um, who went under the name Jill Soloway for a while, but when she transitioned, um, uh, or when they transitioned, she, they uh, now have, uh, have created a beautiful way of leadership, which has a lot to do with making sure all the voices are heard before the shoot even starts. So she puts a box uh, um, on the ground, wherever they are, like a little, what they call an apple box. And apparently it had apples in it a long time ago, but now it's just sort of the shape of an apple box. And everyone stands around in a circle and anyone who wants to stand up on the box and sort of say like, hey, I'm really excited about the shoot today. Um, listen, uh, hair and makeup, I'm really worried that we're not gonna be on time. So, you know, can you please make sure to have that ready by six o'clock or whatever? And like, they, it, she creates a sense that of a, a reminder really that this is a team effort a team create creative effort and i think that's so loving and inspiring and it's a kind of work that i like to be around personally and less sort of a that kind of army dictatorial like show up on time do your job you know don't complain you know know your place which is very much comes from that army world like 10-4 you know like all, all the, the people on their walkies and i'm not really very good at all that language but it's very um uh, it feels very aggressive and sometimes as a creator hard to create in that harder to create in that environment that's how russell treats me <laughs> <laughs> no 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 no, no. Uh, was was your documentary streamed or did it show in studio uh, theaters it showed in theaters um we had a really exciting um uh opening screening here in los angeles um uh, uh where we opened before um, uh, Chloe Zhao's, um, no, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name, it seems called Nomadland. Um, I think mm -hmm. I'm wrong, but um, it, that was really, really moving to me to be able to have be the film before her film here in Los Angeles. And, um, and then we've screened all over the country 
finally, um, we ended up with Collective Eye as a distributor. We were able to get into some incredible colleges. Um, like So they sell it as, a, as, as an educational film to film schools, um, like uh, Marymount, Pepperdine. Um, uh, there's, um, you know, we're in the New York Public Library. I mean, from high to low, which was really the goal for me to make sure that it was accessible. And now it's on Canopy, which is an educational website, um, streaming site where it's in libraries, so anybody can have access to it all over the world, and on Vimeo, which is um, like a easy site that you can just go to right now and like type it in, and there it is for you to see. Very good. All right, we're going to take a short break here, and then we're going to bring Brad in and talk around talk about around the sun. We'll be there. right back. Thank you. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live, reminding you that it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro or by visiting us at AmberLive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. And now, back to this incredible interview. All right, Katie, welcome back. Thank you again for talking with us. Oh, it's so much fun. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we bring Brad in, uh, tell me about the writers and actors strike. How is that affecting you? Well, you know, on the positive side, it's given me an opportunity to reconnect with a lot of people that I haven't seen in a long time because we're walking on picket lines together. <laughs> and on the downside, you know, there's no work. There's the, the industry's really come to a standstill. And so um, some part of that can feel a little bit familiar because, you know, when you're an actor, you're unemployed a great deal of the time or you're continuing to try to create something new for yourself. Um, and on the on the downside, I suppose there's you know, sort of the creeping uh, uh, concern that, you know, how long is this strike going to be? How long yeah. are we going to be out of work? When are they going to make a deal and realize that, you know, actors have value and we need to get paid for our for our work and residuals need to be fair. And, you know, I but I have faith that the, the people in charge of this negotiation are really good people and the right people and that they're going to do a great job by us. So it's just a matter of time. I think. Oh, they have to because new content has to come out. You know, we can only watch um, reruns of Andy Griffith for so long. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's All right. Let's bring our mutual friend in, Brad Ferenza, and talk to Brad. Brad, come on in. <laughs> hey, Brad. I'm stuck in tundra. Tundra. Oh, well. Well, you know, as warm as it's been down here in the lower states, maybe that's not a bad place to be. <laughs> so, th thank you for joining us today. All right. First off, let's talk about um, how you two met. How how'd that happen? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, Katie is a new friend and so generous and so accessible and obviously so talented. And we met through our mutual friend, Suzanne Ordas Curry, who has a hand in Around the Sun and I know is a supporter and collaborator of Katie's. And uh, I'm not sure the exact moment, but Around the Sun season three is the first time Katie and I have gotten to work together in a scripted, project-oriented way. However, Katie might remember inviting me to participate in some of the playwright panels at Axial Theater, wherein she is a leader in Pleasantville, New York. That's right. So, Theater is a whole other realm of Katie's wheelhouse yet to be tapped. <laughs> All right, we have a clip about your season three of Around the Sun. Russell, would you show that, please? 
caterpillar slinks along a fallen dogwood tree. Insectivores could eat it, but instead they just let it be. Cause insectivores been snacking on bugs and ticks and fleas. And the caterpillar cries aloud, guess no one don't want me. Na na, cried the caterpillar, na 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 he. I'm a lowly little arthropod, and no one would want me. Na na, cried the caterpillar, na 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 me. I'm a sedentary arthropod, and no one cares for me. But in the spring's renewal, when the forest starts to bloom, catch the beauty of a butterfly leaving his cocoon. Oh, it was so good to hear Francois Clemens singing. Yeah, lots of Amber Live tie-ins here in season three. Uh, oh, wow, Jay Rodriguez, yes. Robert uh, Fanaro, me, Katie. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It was great. And of course, uh, yeah, Jay Rodriguez and Francois, that, that's great. All right, and so you know, Brad, what Amber, can we... So sorry, what? someone auditioned for Around the Sun, a certain uh, Rusty Peen, but that's yet to be figured out. I think there's a role for Rusty as well. Oh, I, I think he can fit into almost anywhere. <laughs> that's great. Um, so just tell people um, what about Around the Sun, the concept and what you've done so far. Sure, so I'm in Tundra, giving Amber a bit of a bit because season three of Around the Sun takes place in a snowy mountain region, maybe somewhere in the Northeast, perhaps. Around the Sun is episodic audio dramas that can be enjoyed in a self-contained kind of way, but also there are broader themes that cut across each of the individual seasons. So it's anthologized in that sense with personalities, talents, wonderful people, generous of time and spirit who have been part of the project and we're in season three now taking place in the snowy mountain region and how long is each episode each episode's about 10 to 15 minutes ms mclean starts with robert finaro a prior guest of yours in yes. an episode called christmas past and what's unique about season three is that more so than other seasons there is connective tissue from episode to episode so this season Subtitled Pine Cones functions most as a mini series. Very nice. Now, now, Katie, what did you think when you first saw the script that you are doing? I was thrilled because I don't want to give away too much, but it's again one of those great challenges where I don't think um, one might necessarily go, oh, Katie McLean for this. Uh, so I was really glad that Brad thought of me and. Um, I, I think it was such a treat to get to work with Mark Funaro and the story and the, the scenes that we get to do are such a, a beautiful wild arc and a wild trip. Um, it goes all kinds of places in the forward and backward in time. And uh, the characters are, you know, connected in the past and yet struggling to find a future together. It's, it's really beautiful writing. And I, I was just thrilled to get to be asked to be a part Thank you. And, and Katie's such a beautiful, modest person. Not only did I think of Katie and Robert, but I, I wrote it with their voices in mind. So I've been very lucky across seasons to have gotten 
my, my first picks for these roles. It helps to have a voice, a type in mind, though no one is just one type, but it helps to have a voice in mind when banging out these scripts, especially so far along in the series. You write series three. When did I write it? A year ago, last summer, I started writing pine cones. These days, the seasons are written a year before they are heard by our listening audience, which thank you listeners. And if you're not listening yet, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Now you said you had their voices in your head. How about some of the other stories in this series? Oh gosh. So if you saw that wheel of headshots, every actor except for me is introduced in alphabetical order. So for the most part, all of those actors are playing members of a family. Katie and I are playing metaphysical siblings. And I don't mean that in an abstract way. I mean, we're, we're playing siblings and there are others in that group. Jay Rodriguez, Judy Gold, and Estelle Parsons plays the mother. I know it's wacky right here in season three that all of this is coming true and it came true in season two and it came true in season one as well, working with Dreamcasts And in season one, disproportionately, I had the privilege of being mentored and coached by a lot of those awesome folks. Estelle Parsons, how how did you get Estelle Parsons? I asked, I asked nicely. I had a body of work to show for myself. I had people like Katie, whose names were already attached to the project and good intentions. And I think there are so many wonderful talents in the world who might not have projects that have popped as much as the talent that has been in Around the Sun. And I'm so grateful for all of them. I think, I think, I think, I think it's the implied blessing of everyone else who said yes, that gets a Katie McLean to say yes in season three, that gets an Estelle Parsons to say yes in season three, and so on and so on. And Amber, I name dropped you when I asked Jay Rodriguez. That didn't hurt either. (laughs) How about season four? Have you already started writing that? Well, I'm spritzing over here in Tundra, getting ready for season three. So it's in my mind and uh, the conceptual seeds are being sown. When does it hit the airwaves? It'll hit the airwaves, season three, Pine Cones, in fall 2023. And it'll run throughout fall 2023, throughout the holiday season. We do have a bit of a holiday arc this year. Again, Katie and Robert's episode is called Christmas Past, so a little foreshadowing there, foreshadowing about the past. Are they all released at the same time, or is it No, we drop a couple at once, and the last two years that's been late October, and that's the plan this year, and then it's every Wednesday thereafter through the new year. Katie, have you ever done anything like this before? I mean, I've done audio books um, that I've really enjoyed, but I have never done like an audio drama. 
So this was my first time doing it. And uh, it was really fun. It reminded me of when I was a little girl. I used to listen to the Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes stories. Do you remember those? Oh, yes. Yes. And they were so much fun. And there were, and we would drive, of course, you know, I grew up here in, in California and we would drive for what seemed like forever. And you'd have to have something interesting to listen to on the radio. There were no phones, iPhones and things like that at the time. So, uh, it, it really struck me as something that I loved. And so when Brad asked me, I was like, oh, this will be fun. And it turns out it's a, a very, it's like everything old is new again. It's become, there's a big, um, you know, rush to make these audio dramas. I think people are really enjoying them and, and eating them up. So uh, I was really glad. What's that? It's such a cool medium to imagine the world that you and Robert are creating, that Estelle and Jay and everybody else, Judy, et cetera, are creating with their mind's eye is just, it taps into one's imagination, maybe more so than everything being spelled out for them. And Katie and Robert's episode is particularly special. Now they recorded together. I have the privilege of recording with everyone who's part of the ensemble. And it's an abstract episode. So there are things that we all had to kind of be on the same page about, like what was happening in the present, Christmas present, what was happening in Christmas past, that for the listener, they can kind of decide for themselves what's a metaphor, what's real. And if it was television or film, it would all have to be spelled out for them, which is totally cool as well. It's just a different kind of orientation. Well, it sounds fascinating. I can't wait till it hits the airwaves. Katie McLean, thank you so much for talking to us. And Brad Forenza, again, a great guest. Thank you both for joining us on Amber Live. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single minute of the fun. And remember, it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro or by visiting us at AmberLive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. Thank you. Live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber, she's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber, cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber, with two drinks in her hand. The matriarch of fashion, sequence to her glasses, you can't look away. Ask her, does she do it?